It is amazing to be with you again this morning, and uh, this is just awesome and, and glorious. I, I remember, I can't remember, uh, the last time I was here, was there was uh, studs, but no real walls, and I got to walk through with Christina. She took me through and showed it to me, and I was really excited, and I was really hoping I could be here when you dedicated, and then as the spring moved on, I realized very quickly that I would be in India while you were doing the dedication. And so Jeff was gracious enough to invite me to come this fall and, and to be with you. If, if I've not met you, my name is Jim Whittle and uh, I was the founding pastor. And uh, I remember when we bought this land in uh, 95, I think it was, and this is what I envisioned and it's come to fruition and it's God's grace. And answered prayer and the faithfulness of many of you. Thank you to Jeff and the session to Bernie for all the work you've done to bring this about. It's for the Lord's glory, but I I share the joy with you of being here. Uh, I am the India director for Equipping Leaders International. After pastoring for 20 plus years, the Lord was gracious enough to give me a Another, another kind of job, and I train pastors in India, and uh, you're committed to equipping leaders. You support us in ministry, uh, support ELI, and uh, in India what we're doing is uh, we're training mostly village pastors who have no access to training. And uh, our team in India is working with about five or 600 pastors face-to-face. We, we work with five ministries, five or 600 pastors face-to-face, and then those 600 train another 20 plus thousand, and it represents about 30,000 churches, which is somewhere between a million and a half and two million believers. So that's the kind of impact partnering churches like yours have in the mission field. So it's a, it's a pretty cool thing. This morning we're in the book of Philippians, and, uh, and we're going to look at the gospel and the advancement of the gospel with joy. So if you'll turn in your Bibles there with me or or your phone, or your tablet, however you want to follow along or read up on the screen. We're in Philippians chapter 1, and uh, we're just going to read three short verses here, verses 12 to 14. Hear the word of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So maybe you heard about the farmer who uh, who was out in central Florida. He had a farm, and after many years of working it, it, it looked to him like it was in need of a lot of repair. And So it's like owning a house for 20 years and you don't really want to do the upkeep. So you decide to sell it and put it on the market. So that's what the farmer did. And so he called a realtor to help him sell the property. And a realtor came out and looked at it so that, so that she could write out an ad to put on Zillow and capture everybody's attention. And so she did, she came and she looked at the farm and then she went back to the office, wrote up the ad and then called the farmer and said, you know, let let me see if this ad meets with your approval. So she says, here's what it says. This uh, farm is in a a great location. There is a beautiful and well-maintained house. There are sturdy barns. There's lush pasture lands, a, a beautiful pond, 
a fertile soil, and a great view. What do you think? And the farmer thought for a moment, and he says, well, read it back to me again slowly. And so she said, this is a beautiful farm. It's a great location uh, with a well-maintained house, sturdy barns, lush pastures, a beautiful pond filled with fish, fertile soil, and a great view. And finally, the farmer responded. He says, you know, don't put that ad on the Zillow. I've always wanted to live in a place like that. I think I'll just stay right here. You know, as we, as we live, we're constantly making assessments about value and the situation that we live in. And we're making judgments and decisions based on how we see the world. And, and one of the things we deal with in our life is struggling and and struggles and what look like obstacles and maybe it, it seems like time for a change. And so the question is, how are we as Christians going to respond biblically to the circumstances that are in our lives? And just like the farmer, how we answer those questions is all about perspective. What do we see when we look at, at our life and the world around us, and we want to develop a biblical perspective. And the, and the Apostle Paul certainly did, and you can see it in these three verses. And so I have three things that I want to share with you from this passage, three aspects of the gospel that I want to show you. The first is gospel circumstances. The second is gospel expansion. And the third is gospel encouragement. So gospel circumstances, I I don't know about you, but I love being around new Christians, especially ones, uh, people who've run from Christ for a long time and have now been found. They're still so rough around the edges. They got a lot of bad habits and rough habits and their life is messy, but but they have such infectious joy about newfound faith in Christ and, and, uh, and they're just happy to know Jesus finally. And, and then I also love hanging around with religious folks who, who have, after years of striving in the church and being in some moralistic world where they're called to constantly do better and, and, and they haven't done better and they finally found the grace of the gospel and, and they're learning to rest in Jesus. And they're sit, not sitting under anybody's judgment anymore. It's really, it's like watching kids every day at Christmas. There is such joy. Well, Philippians is called the epistle, the, the letter of joy. And what makes this letter really glorious is that Paul wrote about joy while he was suffering in prison. It, it's incredible, really. Because, you see, those brand new Christians, those people who are new to the gospel of grace, the truth is, their life is just around the corner from their first real obstacles to joy. Because you don't have to be a Christian very long before you run into struggle. Now, often that struggle is internal. Disappointment with yourself. You're not living like you'd like to live. So, sometimes that struggle is with your family and friends who think you're you're crazy for your newfound zeal in Christ or for joining that Presbyterian church. And and uh, we see this a lot in India. If you come to faith in India, your family immediately rejects you. And so sometimes that struggles with your family. They just think you're crazy. And, and other times that struggle comes from within the church because if you're here very long, somebody's going to hurt your feelings or step on your toes or they're going to do something that you don't think is right. 
Or, or maybe it's your circumstances. Maybe something's happened at work. Maybe your job has brought you some big disappointments and it hasn't turned out like you thought it would. Maybe, maybe it's your money seems to be running short uh, and there's always more money, at, uh, more bills at the end of the month than there is money. Or, or maybe it's your cars. We've often driven old cars and they need a lot of work. Or, or maybe it's your kids. You know, I thought parenting was going to get easier as time went on, and then my kids got to be grown, and now it's the most stressful time of parenting ever because, you know, when your kids are grown, you got no leverage. They can do whatever they want. As long as they can pay their own bills, they're free, and all you are now is an advisor, and your kids do weird stuff. It's stressful. and Or maybe it's your health. Maybe you're struggling with uh, some long-term illness, and it just seems like some of this stuff will never go away. Whatever is happening, it just looks like there's detours or roadblocks or obstacles are everywhere. And so the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians while he was under house arrest in Rome. And he was there for two years in this loving church in Philippi. This was one of his few partnering churches. And they were concerned about his welfare. And so one of the reasons he wrote this letter was so to, was to assure them that he was all right. So in Philippians in chapter 1, he's given thanks for them and he's prayed for them. And so now in verse 12, he addresses their concerns by talking about the problems he faces. And problems they're aware of and they're concerned about. And what he says here is that he's okay. Because you see, Paul saw all of his obstacles, all of his struggles, all of his pain through one lens. They were all there to advance the gospel in his life and in others. Now, is that how you see your life, beloved? That everything that's going on in your life is there to advance the gospel in your life and in others. That it's all to bring fame to the name of Jesus that we just sung about. And it's all there to grow you up in grace. Is that how you see it? Because you see, this is what we're talking about when we talk about the sovereignty of God. Now what most Presbyterians are thinking about is the doctrine of election and which comes first, regeneration or faith, and getting a nice little argument about that. But the real issue in God's sovereignty is whether our life in Christ has any purpose. Does it matter? And do our negative circumstances have meaning? Or as Jesus just stepped off his throne for a few days or a few months or even a few years. So consider the life of Paul for just a moment. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. And before that he spent two years in prison in Caesarea. And it all started for Paul back in Jerusalem in Acts 21. Where he was falsely accused of law breaking in the temple. And he was nearly lynched by a religious mob. And he ended up in a Roman prison. And although he was in the right and he had done nothing wrong. He was being treated unjustly. And he could not even get a hearing in order to change things. And he was insulted. And he was maliciously misrepresented. And he was kept in prison simply so the ruler could gain favor with the people. And he was hoping for a large bribe. And so on his way from Caesarea to Rome, when Paul finally appealed to Caesar, they moved him from Caesarea to Rome. And on the way, he was shipwrecked in the sea. And his life hung in the balance at the sea. 
And when he finally got to Rome, it was not with the fanfare that an apostle deserves. It was not with trumpets. He arrived instead with the condemned, chained to other men who were headed to prison. And he spent two years there under house arrest. And he was constantly chained to a Roman guard, a member of the elite palace guard. He slept with those men. He ate with those men. He was never alone. And what was his crime? Well, it was faithfulness to the gospel. Paul was struggling and suffering not because of disobedience. That's how we normally think about karma. But he was suffering for obedience, for doing what's right. That's why he went to Jerusalem in the first place. And Paul went because the Holy Spirit sent him there to advance the gospel. And and the Holy Spirit warned him at every step that when he got there, he was going to suffer. And the Holy Spirit warned him to that, not so that he would turn away, but so that he'd be ready for the struggle that was coming. And, And what's incredible to me is that he knew he was going into the lion's den and he went anyway. You know, even Daniel was made to go. Paul went because the Spirit sent him. And he even told his friends in Ephesus, his Ephesian elder friends there, they wept on the beach when he saw them. He said, this this will likely be the last time I'll ever see you. And, and they wept together. So, so, beloved, the question this morning is, are you like the farmer looking with disappointment at the years of your life and at all your failures and your hurts? And the struggles and the low maintenance in your spiritual life. And and are you wondering why God has let you down? Are you like the real estate agent? Seeing the, the real pastures and the ample barns that God has built in your life through struggle. Which is it do you see when you consider where you've been and what's going on? I remember back in the... 2010, the church I pastored for 11 years in Douglasville has a school, and that often brought many challenges. And after, well, after being there nine years, I was tired of the school. And so a job opening came up in the PCA, a pulpit was open in the, well, my, my wife Sherry said, just look at the list. You know, there's a list online that pastors go and look at when they're really down. And they go look at the list to see if there's something better to do than, than the job they have. So Sherry said, go look at the list. So I went and looked at the list, and there was a church near Charleston. Sherry's family lives in Charleston. She said, you need to apply for that job. I said, are you sure? I'm not really sure I'm supposed to. She says, do it. And so I applied for the job, and I got through the first hurdle, and, and, uh, and they wanted to hear my sermons and those kind of things. And so... They were all on the web, which is maybe a mistake because they looked back seven years. I got flushed. So I got this flush letter and I read it and it just simply said they weren't interested anymore. No explanation. And so I was pretty distressed. And so I called the chairman of the search committee to ask her what was going on. And, and she, uh, she says, well, we're just not interested. And I said, well, just for my sake, could you tell me why? Did I do something wrong? Is there something that's not a good fit? Because I really thought this was a good fit. And she says, well, we listened to a number of your sermons, and there was, I don't even remember exactly what it was. It was something from like 10 years ago that they had listened to in an online sermon. And I thought, you didn't even have the good grace to call me. 
And I went and told a friend about it. I was pretty disappointed. He said, well, aren't you glad you're not going there? And, uh, and you know, he was right because six months later, it turned out that the assistant pastor was molesting children in the nursery. And he was arrested. And the church I was serving had already gone through that. I'd already been through that once. And you see what looked like an enormous roadblock. I remember hearing about that. And I wasn't, don't get me wrong, I wasn't pleased that they were suffering. But man, was I happy that we were still in sleepy little Douglasville in West Georgia and not dealing with that mess. You see, sometimes the roadblocks in your life Well, you don't know that the bridge is out ahead. You think that the Lord is keeping you from your plan and something that you could really do well. And the Lord is protecting you from trouble. And and you just don't know. You think it's always to keep you from joy because the Lord is a a Georgia fan or something. So you're not sure what's going on. And the Lord saved me. You see, after all that... Paul had been through, he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And yet, unless you think he's just selling to say positive things, he gives two solid examples in this passage about how that's so. One is on the outside of the church and one is on the inside. So this takes us to our next point. The first is gospel expansion on the outside. Look at verse 13 again. Paul says, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So I already told you Paul's under house arrest in Rome. His chains were somewhat longer than handcuffs. They were about 18 inches long, half a yard, half a meter. One end was on his wrist. The other was on the wrist of the guard. It it made escape and Well, we say it in India, it was privacy. It made escape and privacy. Privacy was impossible. He was chained night and day. He was allowed to live in his own quarters, but, you know, it wasn't like one of those comfortable little bracelets you wear on your ankle. He had a a guy he had to drag around all over the house. And and he was there for two years. And I'm sure that the rotation of guards, there were several dozen guards, different soldiers over those two years. And so... We know from the book of Acts that when Paul arrived in Rome, the first thing he did was he called uh, the, he called the local leaders of the local synagogue to come and discuss the gospel with him and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham. And so when he preached the gospel to those men, well, the guards were there. And, and over his time in prison, he had several helpers, Timothy and Epaphroditus are two of those guys. And And their job was to bring him books and to bring him regular audiences to teach and and to preach the gospel. And meanwhile, well, the guards were there. And the guards saw everything and, and they heard every word. And over time, they would have known the facts of the gospel very well. They would have learned that Paul was falsely accused and, and he was in chains for the gospel. And in addition, they would have been attracted to his great love for the lost and his compassion for the sheep. And, and they would have experienced firsthand his graciousness and, and his patience and his wisdom and his deep convictions and his genuineness and his humility. They would have seen his perseverance and affliction. And they would have listened to him pray. Can you imagine? 
And, and they would have heard him pray for the Philippians for abounding love. And, and, and they would have heard him pray for the Ephesians that they might know the depths of Christ's love. And, and for the Thessalonians, they might persevere in the midst of great persecution. And, and I imagine that many of them came to faith and prayed with him. That's what he says. And he says that at the end of the book of Ephesians. And they, they would have learned the gospel and they would have been discipled by Paul and they would have become leaders in the local church and their cups would have overflowed into the lives of the, all those working in the palace guard and they would have gone home and discussed the gospel with their wives and their companions and with all those living in the palace itself. They would have talked about this strange little man who talks about a savior named Jesus who has risen from the dead. And many came to faith as a result. And imagine the influence on the Roman Empire that Paul had because he was arrested and sent to Rome. It would be like a modern day Paul being under house arrest near the White House and his guards are all secret service and the rotating guards would hear the gospel and they would talk about it among their friends and companions and co-workers and many would be saved and the talk would go around the White House and the West Wing and in the office across the street and perhaps even the president and his cabinet would hear about Christ. Imagine the influence of one person committed to the gospel. That's what they're... Solomon says in Proverbs, he says, the Lord has made everything for a purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. That's what Paul is talking about here in this passage. His imprisonment in Rome gave him access to people he could have never discussed the gospel with otherwise. It expanded the gospel in a way that never would have been possible without this severe trial. So the question is, who is it that the Lord has placed you near, which gives you unique access to discuss the gospel and the goodness of grace. Each one of you is unique, and the Lord has put you on a particular street, in a particular job, in a particular place that uniquely gives you access to people that other people don't have access to, people that Jeff will never have access to, and your elders. You know, in, in India, one of the ministries we're working with is called Serve India Ministries. The leader is, is named Ebenezer Samuel. He goes by Ebby for short. And uh, his middle name is Zerubbabel. Imagine that. And, and, uh, and so Ebby Zerubbabel, he, he's 61. He's leading this ministry called Serve India Ministry. And he had a vision in 2006 from the Lord to reach 100,000 villages and to plant the church in 100,000 villages. Now that's vision. There are 700,000 villages in India. And so many of the villagers are animists. They're mixed with Hinduism. It's a, it's a bad, idolatry, uh, idolatrous, syncretistic religion. And they need to be set free from the gospel. So here's how, here's, here's how he planned to do it. He would train untaught village pastors, 20 of them at a time in pods of 20. The first time I heard this story, I thought, he's got a Presbyterian denomination, he doesn't even know it. And so he was training them in pods of 20. In 2006, he started with one training pod. He would train it himself. And so here's what happened. He, he committed to train them for five years, meeting them with, for, with them one one day a month for training. And what they had to give in return was not money, but the commitment to train 10 other people 
and to do evangelism in five surrounding villages so that they could plant five daughter churches in five years. And what's happened over those 11 years is that there's now, there's now 30,000, somewhere between 30 and 40,000 churches. They're on their way to the 15 year vision. And we get to train their, their staff trainers. It's pretty cool. And what was some simple evangelical um, materials has now weighted in with some solid doctrine and the gospel of grace and how to study the Bible and preach the gospel. It's really a great fit. Now, here's what I want you to take away. Five villages in five years. Wonder if you began to pray for five streets. Not five villages, but five streets around you. Five streets in your village, in your neighborhood. And I know many of you are walking for health. You know, you can go online. You know, you can be really nosy on the internet these days. You can go online and find out the names of all your neighbors and who owns which property and which house. You can find out that what the house is worth and what they paid in taxes and all kinds of weird stuff. But mainly what you can do is you can take that knowledge and you can type it up on your computer and you can make a list of your neighbors and know them by name. And you could prayer walk your neighborhood once a week, once every two weeks, once a month. And you could take a Sunday night or a Saturday night and, and walk with your family and pray by name for your neighbors. Isn't that amazing? What technology, what a tool it can be for the gospel. And you can begin to do that and ask God for divine appointments and opportunities to share grace, the goodness of hospitality and fellowship, and the grace of the gospel. What, what a difference that would make in Melbourne to have a church that was praying for five streets in each family and reaching out with the gospel. And that's what God can do with one family, one church in one community. He can do it here through you. Just as Paul reached the imperial palace, nobody will ever know what's going on here. But your chairs will overflow. This building won't be big enough. And you'll see people coming to faith in ways that you never imagined. By praying for lost people, your five streets, and praying for God to do his work. You know, Paul reminds me of another great preacher in jail and and. Well, there have been many in India. Our preachers get beaten and go to jail. This famous man's name is John Bunyan. Have you heard of him? I bet you have. He was a popular and powerful preacher in England in the 1600s. And like the Jews in Jerusalem, the, the, the establishment, they hated Paul and they had him arrested. So the establishment leaders of the Church of England hated Bunyan because he was an independent preacher and he was out doing his own thing. And so they had him arrested in order to get him to stop preaching. Well, the irony is it had the opposite effect because now instead of sneaking around and preaching in house churches and avoiding arrest, he now can preach because there's no other obstacles, right? So he no longer had to sneak around, so he's preaching every Sunday, and all the citizens of Bedford, the community he lived in, would just stand, come and stand around the jail and listen to him preach the gospel boldly to his fellow prisoners and to the hundreds of citizens who came, a far bigger influence than he had going church to church. And so as a result, then he was warned some more, he was cajoled, he was punished, 
He was brought before tribunals in order to stop him. They offered to set him free. If he would stop preaching the gospel, they said he could get out of jail and go back to being a blacksmith, which was his trade. And he said, if you let me out today, I will preach the gospel again tomorrow. And like the apostle Paul said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Bunyan was committed to the word in the same way Paul was. So Bunyan was silenced verbally and he was put in the deepest places of the jail in the dungeons so nobody could hear him from there and it was there that he had time to think and to read and to write and his two companions all he had with him was his bible and fox's book of martyrs those are great companions and he had some paper apparently and he was in the jail for 12 years and he wrote many pamphlets and books and the most famous is pilgrim's progress how many of you have read that book most of you and, and millions have read that book and they've come to faith and millions more have read that book and been cheered and changed by the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the great preacher Charles Spurgeon read that book every year just to encourage his own soul about grace. You see, beloved, our adversary stalks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour, but he has no power over you. None. God is at work. That's what we sang. God, Jesus has no rival. And he has no power over you. God is at work perfecting each one of us for his glory. And even our trials are measured out by God to bring about the fame of the name of Jesus. And even the trials of Job advance the gospel. And your trials do also. How many more people heard the preaching of John Bunyan because of 12 years in prison than would have ever heard him if he'd been left to his little church? Countless millions and centuries of grace. And that takes us to the third thing that I wanted to show you this morning, which is gospel encouragement. That's inside the church. That's in verse 14. You can look there. He says, and most of the brothers... Having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know, a Christian in the, in the, in the days of the Roman Empire, in the days of the apostles, they faced many obstacles and, and often persecution, especially preachers, either from the Jews or from the Romans or both. We, we see the same thing in India, the radical Hindu government will brook no quarter. You can believe in Jesus as long as he's one of the gods. But when, when, when it becomes exclusively Jesus, that becomes an instant problem. And so the reigning emotion in these circumstances is fear. The same kind of fear that you feel over your health or your job or other issues. Fear of persecution. Fear of being shut out from the mar- marketplace. Fear of being kicked out of your family. Fear of arrest. Fear of death. Well, it it sounds strange, but Paul's boldness and his courage in the face of death, in the midst of chains, his courage gave courage to others. Because you see, courage is infectious. Courage is not the lack of fear. Only crazy people are never afraid. Courage is being faithful even though you are afraid. 
And Paul knew that his chains were for Christ and that the suffering of Christians advances the gospel. And he knew the church needed encouragement in the midst of fear. And so his chains encouraged the brothers to face their fears and to preach the gospel boldly. And his chains encourages my friends in India. His chains encourage They encourage me. The worst that anybody can do to you is they can kill you. The worst that can happen is that you're going to die. And you're going to do that anyway. And and then you'll be with Jesus. It's a good program. And, And Paul's boldness gave courage to the brothers. You see, Paul wrote four books while he was arrested. He was arrested a couple times. This was his first arrest in Rome. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And some of the great illustrations that give us courage are based on his time there. I love the armor of God passage in Ephesians 6 that he got from the soldiers. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 2. They may put it up on the board. 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I love that last verse. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Because to do otherwise would be a denial of his own faithfulness to his promises, to us and and to Christ. You see, Paul knew that as an apostle, everything that happened to him was for the good of the church and for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the elect. He didn't even know who those people were, but he knew that that's how they would come to faith, through the preaching of the gospel. And so he also knew that he was not alone in this privilege. He knew that everything that happens to any of God's children serves the sovereign advancement of God's kingdom. And and he invites us to join him in that perspective and hope. That's what it means for all things to work together for the good of those who love God. It means that even our struggles have a purpose in God's kingdom. And it's to bring about the fame of the name of Jesus and our own sanctification. So Paul invites Timothy in this passage to suffer with him for the cause of the gospel. And not only Timothy, but us as well. I don't have the passage for you, but in 2 Corinthians 1, he tells us that God brings suffering to us so that we can experience the comfort of Christ. And when we've experienced the comfort of Christ, then he gives us the grace to suffer with other people and encourage them with the comfort that we've received in Christ. Now, what an incredible promise that is. That the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives so that his comfort will overflow into the lives of others. That's the advancement of the gospel. Even your struggles have purpose. That's so good. Now, here's the bad news. There is bad news. The the bad news is, is that if you constantly question the obstacles and the hardships in your life, if you see every roadblock or barrier as a, 
as an obstacle and a barrier to your, your good plans, if you see all your struggles as a threat to your happiness, well, if that's the way you see it, then I can tell you that you're going to live in discouragement and fear and struggle will give birth to more struggle because of his faithfulness. And for some people, well, for some people, that hardship may lead to a practical denial of God's grace, giving up on God. That's really bad. God, Paul says, if you deny God, God will deny you. That's incredibly bad. But there is good news, beloved. It's an amazing good news. Jesus said, behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on a cross for our sins. And he rose from the dead to give us new life. Paul says, if we are faithless, and who isn't? He says, if we are faithless, then God is still faithful. Isn't that amazing, Grace? Even though I'm churning with doubts and I'm questioning his goodness and wondering about his love, he doesn't ever let go of me. That's astonishing. It's so good. He holds on when I have no strength to hold on. Like a child who falls asleep in your arms and doesn't get dropped. That's what it's like. Jesus died on a cross for our sins, even the sin of doubting his goodness. And he rose from the dead to give us a new life, a life filled with promise. This promise that everything that happens to me serves as an advancement for the gospel of grace. A life where his faithfulness turns my faithlessness into fruitful gospel living. And so I invite you this morning to trust in him, to renew your hope in him, to believe the gospel once again, beloved. Maybe for some of you the first time, to put your hope in Christ alone. You know, Paul suffered greatly for the gospel, more than you and I will, I'm sure. And yet he never lost hope. You know why? Because he never lost sight of the heavenly vision. As a persecutor of the church on the road to Damascus, Paul met the resurrected and reigning Jesus And he was changed forever. And instead of a murderer of Christians, which he was, he became God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the whole empire. That's incredible. And Paul never lost sight of that calling. And you're thinking, well, if I had a vision, it would work for me too. But you see, it was never easy because the more you see, the more you suffer. That's how God works. Here's what he wrote. uh, You can put this one up, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at this passage. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's serious business right there. Instead, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's the gospel right there. That Jesus has risen from the dead and we are united with him in his death and his resurrection. So that even the struggle unites us with his suffering. So that we can learn the lesson that he learned as well. The obedience that he learned as a man. Not to rely on ourselves, but on God 
who raises the dead. It was never easy. Ha! But it was oh so good. And it was fruitful for the kingdom of God. A life of gospel purpose. And that's what he's promised to us, beloved. Because you see, the pastures are lush. And the barn is full. And the pond is teeming with big old fish. And the view. Well, the view is incredible. And the Father has invited us to eat in his big old house. So I want you to know that what has happened to me, that what is happening to you, that what has happened to Paul has really served to advance the gospel and bearing fame to the name of Jesus. Beloved, will you believe it? I hope so. For that, you see, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we praise you that you have such amazing sovereign love for us that every aspect of our life in a fallen and broken world, every bit of our doubt, every moment of weakness, every joy and unexpected goodness is all brought by your hand to bring us closer and closer to you and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, you share your glory with us in the gospel. You share yourself with us. You've given us your best gift, the Lord Jesus, and we love you for it. Father, would you encourage us today, renew our hope in you, and be glorified in that work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.